0: All right, good morning, everybody. So if you got your Bibles with you this morning, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5, and the title of our lesson is Total Depravity. Um, Now, I'm going to tell you up front that today's lesson is going to be a hard one. Um, I'm going to probably say some things that you may have never heard before. Uh, I may you're going to probably need to go back and listen to it later on the podcast, and and so it's not going to be an, an easy one. Um, and if and if I if I if we didn't go verse by verse and chapter by chapter in this class, it, this would be one that we'd probably just skip or go through really fast. But it's The reason I took my time on is because there's some real lessons here about how to read the Bible and how to uh, uh, interpret the Bible. In fact, several years ago, when I first started uh, really studying the Bible, um, instead of just reading it, just really started studying I remember I ran across a quote. I don't remember who said it, don't remember where I heard it or anything like that, but I've always remembered it. And it said that whenever you study the Bible or you study a passage, you, there's really two questions that you should ask yourself. Uh, the first one is, what does it mean? And, and, and it, not what does it mean to you or what does it mean to me. Nobody cares. What did it mean to the guy who wrote it? Everybody with me? There's too many Christians today reading the Bible and say, what does it mean to me? That's not, that's not nobody cares. That's, that's not the point. The point is, what did it mean to the guy that wrote it? What did it mean to the audience he was writing it to? That's what's important. Now, with that said, I've got a confession to make. I have, on these first four verses and five verses in this chapter, I have read and studied and read and studied, and I'm going to present an interpretation to you today, and I'm still not 100% sure that it's right. I mean, that's how difficult this one is. But uh, I'm going to do my best, and uh, I think I'm close, but I just want you to make make you understand that I'm still not 100% sure exactly what it means the second question that you always ask yourself is why is it here in other words what what's the point the holy spirit is trying to get across why did why did the holy spirit make sure that this got documented uh, in the bible now with that i am much i have a much greater degree of certainty uh, I'm almost certain for 100% why this passage of Scripture is here. You see, chapter 6 is all about getting ready for the flood. Uh, and this, these first few verses are here to show us just how bad things were on the earth uh, at that time. In fact, so bad that God saw the only remedy was to wipe everything out and basically start all over again. And that's the point of this. And I think this is going to be important as we move along. You have to remember, this is what these first four verses are all about. They're trying to show us just how bad things were, um, that it required a global flood uh, to, to, to kind of wipe it all, all out. So let's turn to verses 1 and 2. And we'll start reading Genesis 6, 1 through 2. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them... The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Now, this is considered to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the Pentateuch. Not just Genesis, but one of the most difficult passages in the first five books of the Bible. And it all comes down to one question that makes it very difficult... And that is, who are these sons of God? It says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. And that's the question. Who are these Who are these sons of God? Now, there are basically three views on this that you'll see people uh, expound, go to commentaries and things like that. There are three views. The first view is, is that these are powerful rulers. In other words... These are despots or tyrants or kings or dictators, very powerful men who are in trying to to increase their power or their fame or their fertility. They basically overstep their bounds and take wives of any women that they choose. So that's view number one. Now, I will tell you this. If you ask me, is there any biblical evidence for this, I will tell you no, absolutely not. It's just an opinion, it's conjecture that they were powerful men. There's no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. The second view is that they are godly men. Okay, When it says the sons of God, you'll hear people say, well, it means they are godly men. Some people believe that they are talking about the godly descendants of Seth and the daughters of men in this chapter, people will say, are, are, are ungodly women. Uh, probably from the line of Cain. And the problem being described here is intermarriage between the godly and the ungodly. Everybody with me? Okay. Is there any biblical evidence for that? No. Zero. Zilch. Nothing. Nada. Okay. Now the third view is that they are fallen angels. Now before we talk about this view, I want to go back to those other two. Why would people interpret the sons of God to be powerful men or godly men if there's no biblical evidence for it? Well, the reason is because it keeps them from having to deal with the third view. In other words, it keeps them from having to deal with the issue of demons having sexual relations with human beings. In fact, one of the guys that I use a lot, I've got several, when I put together, when I study for this class, I've got several places that I go, several commentators, and different things. One of the guys I use is a guy by the name of Stephen Cole, and he's got all kind of letters behind his name, and a smart guy, and he brings out some really good points. But he's a proponent of view number two. He he says the sons of God are godly men who intermarried with ungodly women. Now, I want you to listen to his reasoning. I took this directly from his sermon series. He said this, To say that Satan was involved in seducing men from a godly heritage to marry ungodly women is not fantastic. But to say that fallen angels actually married human women is fantastic. In other words, what he's saying is, to say that the sons of God are somehow demons or fallen angels, he said, I can't go there. That, that makes no sense to me. It's too fantastic. It's too ridiculous. It's too out there. So therefore, they must mean something else. And so he takes it to mean godly men and godly women now let me say this when i come here to try to interpret a bible i I, i've said this to y'all many times i believe honestly the bible tells us that not don't let many people teach don't be desirous of teaching because they that teach will be held to a higher accountability i don't remember the exact scripture but the fact is when you stand up and teach one day you'll be held accountable for what you do So what I try not to do is is you cannot come, I'm a firm believer, you cannot come to a Scripture with opinions or feelings or philosophies. You can't come with rose-colored glasses on because then you'll never see it. Everybody with me? You have to let the Bible interpret the Bible. Almost divorce your opinions. Divorce your feelings from it. And just come to the Bible and let the Bible tell you what it means. In fact, let the text itself interpret itself, and then let surrounding texts in the Bible support that view. And just, just take your opinions and your feelings out of it, right? And just look at what the Bible says and let the Bible interpret the Bible. And when we do that, we find that there's only evidence for one view, and that is the third view. The first view, there's no evidence. The second view, there's no evidence. The only evidence is for the third view. And here's one of the evidences for the third view. Every other time in the Bible that the Old Testament uses a, a reference to the sons of God, it always, always, always refers to angels. Okay. Every other time. I'll give you some examples. Job 1.6 and 2.1 says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Again, this isn't men. Men don't present themselves before the Lord. These are angels. And, and of course, Satan himself is Lucifer. He's a fallen angel. He comes with them. He's presenting himself with the angels. That's Job 1 6. Job 2 1, we see it again. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. In Job 38 4 through 7, uh, God is responding to Job and he says this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he's talking about angels. There was no men there when he laid the foundations of the earth, but there were angels. In Psalms 89.6, it uses a little bit different terminology, but pretty much the same. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord, who among the sons of the mighty is like The Lord. So every time in the Old Testament that it refers to sons of God, it's always, always, always referring to angels. Now, just as important as the fact that angels are called the sons of God is why they are called the sons of God. Angels are called the sons of God because they are the direct creation of God. Okay, that's why they're called sons of God. Human beings. Like you and I, we are not called that because we are no longer the direct creation of God. In other words, we are the result of of human interaction. We're the result of human procreation. Of course, God put all that into place. We understand that. But the fact is, we are not the direct creation of God. So we are not called the sons of God. Only beings that are the direct creation of God are ever called sons of God. Now, for the Bible... We talked earlier about that's the text. So when we see sons of God mentioned in, in, in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, and we look at the rest of the Bible with the Old Testament, we say, okay, sons of God refer to angels. Is there any other evidence out there that this is, he's got to be talking about angels? Well, let's look at the rest of the Bible. For the rest of the Bible to be consistent, for example, we should see the same thing in the New Testament. Only beings that are direct creations of God should ever be referred to as sons of God. And by the way, when we get to the New Testament, that is exactly what we find. For example, only Adam is ever referred to as the son of God. If you look at Luke 3.38, when Luke is given the genealogy from Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam, you see terms like this, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Everybody is the son of another man. He's the son of this man, who's the son of this man, who's the son of this man. But when you get to Adam, it refers to him as what, the son of God. Why? Because he, his father, there was no, he had no father other than God Himself. God was the creator. Now, there's an, a, a, an incredibly interesting scripture in Luke chapter twenty. Jesus is talking to the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection, and they've asked him if a man has has. Uh, uh, a, wife, a woman's married seven times and all her husbands died. You know, when she gets to heaven, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus responds to this in Luke twenty thirty four to 36. Jesus answered and said to them, Now I want you to listen to this. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage nor can they die anymore. But here's the what part I want you to hear. But they are equal to the angels and are what? Sons of God. Now this this scripture tells us two things. First of all, that angels are sons of God. Everybody see that? They are equal to the angels and are sons of God. So that's what he's saying. The angels are referred to as the sons of God. But notice that now Jesus gives us a new category of people who are referred to as sons of God. And here he calls those that are counted worthy. Well, who's he talking about? talking about us. We are now called sons of God. You see, in the New Testament, those that are born again are called sons of God. Why? Because to be born again, you have to be a direct creation of God. See that? I mean, it's very consistent throughout the Bible. John 1, 12 through 13 says this, but as many as received him... To them gave He the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you are born again, if you are redeemed, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you've been saved, then the Bible says you are a direct creation of God. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, not of man, but of God, Romans eight fourteen. For as many as are led by the spirits of God, these are the sons of God. Galatians three twenty six. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So that's that's an amazing thing. See, you're, you're called a son of God because you are a direct creation of God. All throughout the Bible, so Christians are called sons of God. Adam is called sons of God. Angels are called sons of God. But normal men never, never ever ever are called sons of God. So whenever a reference is in the Bible is made to a son of God, it is always referring to one who is a product of the creative work of God. And in the Old Testament, that term is reserved for angels. Because again, they're not the product of a human union, but they are the creation of God. And if you try to make that into anything else, if you read that verse and say, well, that means men or that means rulers, or that means despots or kings or tyrants or nobles or anything else, you have absolutely zero basis for that. None. Zip. Zilch. Nada. You are purely... It's, it's just conjecture. It's just guesswork. And I can't go there. That, that makes no sense to me. As, as out there as it may seem to say that they're fallen angels... And they come down and have relations with human we, women is, is out there as it seems. That's exactly what the Bible points to. There's just no way, uh, there's no way around that. So it seems to me fairly clear that these are uh, sons of God are fallen angels. Now, listen, at that point, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. But at this point, I get very unsure because this raises all kinds of questions, right? For example, how can that be? angels we know are spirit beings how can a a spirit being a fallen angel a demon come down and marry a woman and have relations with her well the fact is there's only one way and that is they have to take the body of a man They, they have to because angels are spirit beings they they don't they don't jesus just said they don't they don't marry and are given in marriage because they're spirit beings so in order for them to come down and have relations with a woman, they would have to take the body of man. And by the way, we know, even though I'm, I'm saying this, I'm not just guessing because we know this can and does happen, don't we, in the Bible. There, there's a great story in Genesis 18. We'll get to this in a few weeks. Abraham is, is in his tent one day, and he's, it's in the heat of the day, and he's sitting in the, in the door of his tent trying to stay cool. And it says this, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terabith trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Now why did I add that last part? Because they ate. They don't look like men, they are men. They're in the bodies of men because they're eating. It's not just his imagination. They sat down and ate what he, what he put in, in front of them. So it's these three men. But as you read along in the story, you find this. It says this, Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. So there's three men appear to, to Abraham. One of them is the Lord. The other two, it clearly tells us, are angels. And they go ahead to Sodom to to try to get Lot out of there before they destroy the city. So we know angels can appear in, in human bodies. In Hebrews 13, in the New Testament, it says this, Let brotherly love continue, and do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now let me ask you, how could you unwittingly entertain an angel? Because not only do they look like a human, they eat your food and they sleep in your bed and they sit in your car and they drink what you... Everybody with me? I mean, they're, they're, they look like people, they act like people because they're in the body of a, of a man. Okay, That's how you unwittingly... So we know this happens in, in the Bible. So we know that angels can take on human form, but we also know that in the case of fallen angels or demons, that they can also inhabit existing human bodies and we've got evidence throughout the new testament for for this that demons can enter and occupy human beings now i believe i believe that this is most likely what happened in this case these are fallen angels they have come down to earth they have inhabited the bodies of men and they take women as their wives now that sounds like a lot of guesswork, right? A lot of conjecture. Do I have any other evidence for that? I do. Now, here's what I'm going to show you some things here today that you may have never heard before. There are at least two additional reasons why I think that this is the best explanation. That fallen angels, which I think is, is pretty obvious, this is what it has to be, they come to earth, they take the bodies of human men, and they take women to be their wives. And I think... This is the best explanation, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one is that this actually has New Testament support, in my opinion. And number two, it fits the narrative. Let's talk about uh, New Testament support. I want to read something to you from Jude 6. It says this, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, here you've got these angels, and they have left their place. They've left their dwelling. They've they've left the limits and the boundaries that God has prepared for them. And they've disobeyed Him in some way. Now, where are they at today? They are in everlasting chains. Yes or no? Now you may say to me, well, now wait a minute, Derek, isn't that talking about a third of the angels who got swept out of heaven with Lucifer? Isn't that talking about them? No. It can't be talking about them because we know that not all the angels are in chains. Many many fallen angels out there, many demons are free to do their work. Do you remember Luke 8... Jesus goes into the country of the Gadarenes and there's a man that comes out of the caves and, and Jesus says, what is your name? And they said, we are legion. He, he literally was inhabited by a bunch of demons. Well, let me tell you, those demons are not in everlasting chains, are they? In fact, watch what they say to Jesus in Luke 8, 31. And they, the demons, begged Him, begged Him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Go back, to, uh, go back to Jude 6. He has reserved them in everlasting chains under... Sound like an abyss? It does to me. See, the demons begged him, don't send us there. They, uh, they want to stay free to do their work. So we know from Jude 6 that there looks like there's some demons who have been set aside and, 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 and imprisoned and chained in everlasting darkness while there are other demons in the New Testament who are free to do whatever it is that they, that they want to do. So again, this passage in Jude can't be about all demons. It can't be, because we know that not all demons are imprisoned in everlasting chains. But evidently, some are for something that they did. And what was it that they did? Well, Jude says they left their abode, they left their dwelling, they left the limits and the boundaries that God had set for them. Now, to me... This seems to line up with Genesis chapter 6. If you had some demons who left the limits and boundaries and came to earth outside of what God had told them to do, this seems to me to line up. I'll give you a couple others. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 19. For Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now let's stop right there. Who are these spirits? Well, Spirit in the New Testament, if you study, is never used, or spirits is never used to, as a description for humans unless it's accompanied by what's called a genitive or a qualifier. For, expe- for example, the spirits of righteous men or the spirits of just men. But whenever you just see spirits, it's talking about spirit beings everywhere else in the New Testament. So you've got these spirit beings who are in a prison. Now, why are they there? Read the rest of it. He said he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Now, notice the next part. When were they disobedient? When once the long suffering, the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah. So, here you've got these spirits who are in prison, and they were in prison because they were disobedient. When? In the days of, of Noah. I'll give you one more. Second Peter 2, 4-5. through 5. For if God did not spare the angels who sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and He did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah. Again, you've got these spirits, you've got these demons, you've got these fallen angels who s- sinned. They did something... And again, he cannot be talking about the original sin of, 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 di- of rebellion against God because these angels are reserved in everlasting chains. Okay, They are reserved for judgment. They are put aside and set aside. It seems to me that's what it's talking about in the New Testament. So once again, you've got these demons that have disobeyed God in such a way that they were imprisoned in chains of darkness. And by the way, they will stay there until the time of their final judgment, which is documented in Revelations 20, when all demons will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, so here's what I think happened, as best I can tell. Again, I told you up front, I am not 100% sure, right? Everybody got this? I'm just doing the best I can on this one. Now, here's the interesting thing. So I believe when it says the sons of God came and, and, and took the daughters of men. I believe it's talking about fallen angels. And I believe they inhabited the bodies of men. Now, that raises two questions. Was it voluntary or involuntary? If they came down and they just, they just possessed the bodies of men, then it doesn't seem that men themselves would be blameworthy for that. Whereas if, if the men cooperated with it, then that ain't good, Right? So who does God put the responsibility on? Well, look at verse 3. You read your first two verses, when the sons of God came down and, and saw the daughters of men were attracted and took of them as any wives that they choose. Verse 3 says, Then, then, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. Listen, when God puts the blame, He puts it squarely on men. See, God doesn't come and say, I'm not going to allow demons to do this anymore. I'm not going to allow fallen angels to do this because that's not what's happening at all. I don't think this is a bunch of demons coming down, taking over the bodies of men and just raping any woman that they choose. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. God says I'm not going to allow men to continue to do these kind of things. See, the indication here, the implication here is that this can't happen Unless there's some kind of openness or willingness on the part of the men cooperating with these fallen angels. See, remember what I said at the very beginning. These verses are meant to show us what? How bad it was. Now, listen, if, if the sons of God meant these powerful rulers who were just taking any woman that they choose, listen, that's bad. There's no doubt that is a bad, bad uh, set of circumstances to be going on. If the sons of God meant godly men intermarrying with ungodly women, well, yeah, that's bad too. But let me tell you, if it actually means that human beings were cooperating with demons and inviting them in, does it get any worse than that? Listen, you've gone from Adam and Eve under God, saying it's very good to men cooperating with demons and let them coming into them. I mean, that's why I say it fits the narrative. This is bad. I don't know how it can get any worse. I mean, it just seems to fit the scenario. Imagine a society that is so wicked that you have people actually soliciting demon control and cooperating with demon control. Now, if that's true, if that's the case, then I, like I said, I always ask questions why? And why would they do that? Well, let me tell you, Satan never comes in and says, hey, man, come with me and you'll have eternal damnation. Does he ever just come out and say that? No. No, listen, Satan's always got a lie. Come with me and I'll make you something better than you are. That's always the lie. That's what he told Eve in the garden. Eat the food and you'll be like God. Eat this and you'll be like God. He always promises you something better. Do it this way and you'll be better than you are. Something greater than you are. Something more magnificent. That's that's always the promise. So maybe maybe these demons come in. and, and, And by the way, think about this for a second. If that promise is attractive in the garden when everything is perfect, how much more attractive is it going to be in a world where people are sick and dying and there's raping and murdering and plundering and violence? How much more attractive would it be in that environment than it was, and it worked in the garden, how could it not work in that environment? So maybe these demons somehow convince these men that they could be like gods if they would cooperate with them. Convince them that, hey, we can beat this death sentence. We can beat these limitations that that God has has placed on you. Just work with us. Let us come in and we'll create a super race. We'll we'll get you out of this situation. I don't know what they did. And by the way, if that all sounds familiar, let me tell you, those same lies are at the heart of every false religion that's ever existed and ever will exist on this planet. Just do it this way. You don't need all that atonement stuff. You don't need all that blood stuff and all that stuff. Just do it this way. And you'll be a God. See, we we read stuff like this and we think, man, they might have fall for that back then, but nobody falls for that today. Let me tell you, every Sunday morning I drive down here and I pass that Mormon church. I passed it again this morning and I looked over to the left. You don't, Do you know what Mormons believe? Join this Mormon religion. Wear our special underwear. Get married in our in our temples, and guess what? You'll have your own planet. You'll be a god. You'll have celestial sex for all of eternity and just procreate it with, with all of your children. It's the same lie. It's the same lie. There's, nothing changes. Satan doesn't have to change anything because we don't change. we said it over and over. On our, on our core, on our inside, we are, we're, we're no different. Our nature is, exa- is just as corrupted and evil and wicked as it's ever been. We're always looking for any way out and get out of these limitations that God himself has placed on us because of our sin. It it worked then and it works uh, today. So again, it's that same old lie. Satan says, do it my way, you'll escape judgment, you can be a god, you know, all this stuff. He promises heaven and he delivers hell. So the men of Noah's day would have been deceived uh, in the same way and with the exact same lies. And so things got really, really, really bad. Let's read verse 3 again. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, this is another difficult fa- a phrase to interpret. His days shall be 120 years. God is setting some kind of time limit, and what does he what is he what does he mean by that? Well, this verse is often interpreted. I've heard this my whole life to mean that God is going to limit the lifespan of men and women to 120 years. By the way, it is a very commonly held view that is very commonly wrong, which is just another uh, you know, just another proof that if you just say something enough, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong or it doesn't matter if it contradicts other parts of the Bible, people just say it enough, people eventually will. Uh, will believe it. If you go, Jesus, uh, God makes this statement here. I'm going to limit their life, their span to 120 years. And then just keep reading. You, you get down through the rest of Genesis and you find people living way more than 120 years. For example, Noah himself lives to 950 years after God's declaration. His son Shem lives to 602. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 generations later, Way down the line, we find Abraham living to 175, Isaac living to 180, Jacob to 147. We still find find people today that I read the other day about a guy in Mexico who's 122, or at least he says he's 122. Um, But the point is, is, here's my point. Is that how the Bible works? God makes a statement, says, I'm going to limit men to 120 years and then for the next... 15, 20 generations, we see people living to 147, 150, 170, 180. Is that how the Bible works? Is, does God not know what He's talking about? No. That's, that's not how the Bible works at all. See, if, if, if we come to a, to the Bible and we got an interpretation that con, con, contradicts or conflicts with other parts of the Bible, then there's very likely our, contra, our, uh, our interpretation could be, might be, very well be, Wrong And we need to look at something else. is there another interpretation of this that seems to fit better with scripture that harmonizes with the rest of scripture? in this case, it is in fact, in context here, the scripture is talking about the need for judgment it 's talking about how evil the world is and and the coming judgment he's not into, he's not He's not looking a 1,000 years down or 2,000 or 5,000 saying, you know what, I'm just going to let people live to 120 years old. I don't think that's what He's doing here at all. I think what He's saying here is from this day forward, you got 120 years and it's over. I think what He's saying here is I'm not going to keep dealing with this. This is just getting worse and worse and worse. they got 120 years. And 120 years from the day He makes the statement, the, rain, the, 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 the water opens up from the earth, the heavens open and the floods come. See, I don't think he's talking about a 120-year lifespan. I think he's talking about 120 years from now, the judgment is going to come. And I think that lines up very nicely with Scripture. If you look at our little thing that we did last week where we laid everything out with all the different ages and stuff, you can see over there on the yellow in year 1656 is when the flood came. So if you back up and 20 years to 1536, that would be when God makes a statement. He says, okay, 120 years from now. We've got to get, I gotta talk to Noah, I gotta get this ark built, but 120 years from today, it's all over. We, we, You've heard the old saying, their days are numbered. Well, this is where it starts right here. He said, 120 years, this is, this is gonna be it. Let's read verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old and the men of renown. The key phrase, everybody wants to know, somebody asked me coming in last week, who are the Nephilim? What are the Nephilim? And the key phrase is right down at the bottom. They were what? Men. 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 See, I don't know what it was that those guys thought was going to happen when, they, when, when, when fallen angels came down and had relations with, with women. I don't think know what they thought they were going to produce, but what they produced was men. The word Nephilim is an old Hebrew word that means great men, men of stature, men of renown. In fact, the term means falling ones. The idea of how a rock can fall on you and crush you, the idea is that these men would fall on you, and in other words, they would just as soon kill you as look at you. They had no morals. They were great men. They were strong men. They were violent. They were warriors. The term literally means falling ones. It doesn't mean giants. And they very well could have been giants, been, been men of great stature. But the term falling ones literally means they will fall on you and crush you and not even think twice about it. Again, whatever those fallen angels and the men that cooperated with them thought they were going to produce, in the end, they just produced men, mighty men. Yes, men of renown on the earth, of course. But in the end, they're still just men. Whatever they thought they were going to do, it didn't work. Now, I want to to conclude this because, again, this is a... like I said when I started here, this is a tricky part of, of Scripture... There's no doubt that this is a difficult part of Scripture. And and by the way, I I said when I got up here, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, I don't think you can be 100% sure. And we can disagree, and that's okay. But let's not miss the main point of this passage. And the main point of this passage is trying to show us that the human race had become so bad, so wicked, so evil, that death, was the only remedy. Judgment, the, the judgment of death was the only remedy. The judgment would be severe because the sin, the evil, the wickedness is, is so great. In verse 5, and we'll pick up here next week, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me tell you, God is a good God. And God always does something with, with, with his children and he also does it with people that are not his children. And that is he always looks beyond the deeds and he always looks beyond your actions and he always looks at your heart, always. Even when your deeds are good, even when you're doing all these good things and you're teaching Sunday school for 10 years, God looks past all that and he looks at your heart. Why are you doing that? you doing that because you love me and you love my word, or you doing that because you want everybody to just pat you on the back and tell you how great you are. Why are you doing that? And even when your deeds are bad, he still does the same thing. He looks past the deeds and he looks at your heart. And in that day, he looked past all the evil, and he looked past all the wickedness, and he looked past all that, and he looked at their heart, and what he saw was total and complete depravity. Every intention of their heart was just to do evil. There was nothing in there that even thought about, let's do something good. It was all evil, evil, and it was evil continually. There is hardly a stronger statement in the Bible. You can search the New Testament, and you will not find a stronger text about the evil of the human heart. They had taken the image of God that was within them, and they had so corrupted it, that they had twisted it and turned it and used it to divide. They've got a conscience, right? They've got uh, reasoning. They've got logic. They've got all these image of God gifts inside them, and they take them and they completely go 180 degrees, and they only use them for one thing, and that is to form and devise evil continually. Now let me tell you, God is patient, and God is kind, and God is merciful but God always has a limit. And in that day, it was 120 years. He said, you got 120 years more, and it's all over. Listen, we don't know when our time will finally run out on this earth. But I do know three things we do know. I do know that in our day, like Noah's, is a time of unparalleled corruption. I I tell you, I... You could have said that 50... I'm I'm sure people all down throughout the ages have said that. You know, people in the 1800s looked around and said, man, what's wrong with these people, you know? But let me tell you, today, just... I I don't even know how to explain that. Sometimes I can't even put it into words how it got this bad this quickly. I mean, we live in a time of unparalleled corruption. We know that. We also know in Acts 17.31... Says this: He has appointed on a day, on which He will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness, by the man whom He has ordained, and He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. The very fact that God, there's a day appointed right now, God knows that day. It's coming. It's out there. It's set. It's it's set right now. It's coming, and He He has assured us of this. He has validated this by the fact that He rose that He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That day is coming. Just like it was coming for Noah's time, it's coming for us. We also know in Luke 17, and I'll close with this, 26 to 27, these are the words of Jesus. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. They just kept going along with life, just moving along, everything just going along the same, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came, and destroyed them all. Next week, we'll pick up with Genesis uh, chapter 6 again, and we'll stay in verses 5 through 12. We've got a little bit more we need to cover on, uh, on total depravity if you want to read ahead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis 6. Lord, it's a hard scripture. Uh, and Lord, as I stated up front, I'm not 100% sure. It's very vague, and it's hard to interpret. But I do know this, Lord. Things in that day were bad. And you brought judgment, and things in this day are bad, and you're going to bring judgment. So I pray this morning that we don't miss that point. That in all the other things that's going on, that the main point will be the main point. That judgment is coming. Judgment. If we don't, if we're not right with you, it's coming for us. If we've got family and friends and coworkers and classmates, colleagues, if they're not right for God, with God, it, it, it's coming for them as well. So help us, Lord. To the the immensity of that coming day will rest upon us. That we won't be just flippantly going about life and forgetting about the fact that judgment is coming. Help us be the mouthpiece that Enoch was. Help us to be the mouthpiece that Noah, who's called a preacher of righteousness, was. Help us tell our friends, our family, our co-workers, our colleagues, our classmates, those we run into, about that day. Help us to be the people that preserves your name. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Thank you all.